0: Hey there, Omaha. Thank you so much for tuning in to another uh, episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. Um, just been so fun um, being able to continue to to bring these to you, to really be able to bring more voices and uh, and just a- allow chefs to kind of tell their story, talk about their restaurants, talk about the food industry as a whole. and. Today's guest, th- there are a few better people in Omaha, I think, than today's guest to hit on all those topics. This is the owner of LeBouillon and Via Farina in downtown Omaha. He has been a semi-finalist for a James Beard Award. He is, this isn't like a, a distinct title, but I'll just go ahead and say it. He's one of the best chefs in Omaha. This is uh, Paul Kulik. Welcome to the show, Paul.
1: Hi there. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Yes. It, it is a real pleasure to have you on it. And we we kind of talked and we set this up and I was like, okay, this is awesome. Like I'm having Paul on. And so then I I started doing my research a couple days ago and I learned you have degrees in engineering physics and French. Yeah, You've given Ted talks previously. You are not like, and this is nothing against most chefs, but you are not a common chef. And I was just like, oh man, I gotta be ready for this one. <laughs> so, I mean, you have that background and you have all this knowledge. How did you get into cooking? Well, um, I'll get into that in, once, in, in one
1: sec. I just want to mention that I've actually been listening to you over the past couple of years because you were a regular guest, still are, on um, Sharp and Benning mm-hmm. and uh, and now uh, Betting and Severe. And so um, I've always enjoyed your appearances on that show. And oh, so it's well, been, thank yeah, you. It's been really interesting to kind of see your um, interest in, in this, which is my lifelong passion, it's my obviously career, but also deep, deep, deep invested passion, uh, which is to say the culinary scene in Omaha, Mm -hmm. find another compatriot, find somebody else who Mm -hmm. kind of has kind of spread your wings into that. And actually it serves a tremendous purpose because there is, there are a ton of stories. Everybody has a story. Everyone in the industry seems to be um, kind of an outlier in their own way. Uh And so you get to meet a fantastic range of people that are fascinating and unbelievable to work with and or to hear from and and learn from. And so I'm glad you got a chance to do that more and more and more.
0: Yeah, and 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 real quick, I'll let you answer that question. But like it's funny that you mentioned that because like my parents I've they've asked me about the podcast and they're like, you're doing a great job and everything. But they're like, aren't you gonna run out of like people to talk to or like stories to tell? I'm like, every single person from the dishwasher at whatever restaurant to the executive chef at the best restaurants in Omaha has an awesome story. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I just, I love talking to different people. Everyone is such an individual and it's, it's just a pure joy for me to be able to bring these stories to light. So people, they don't just go to a restaurant and have food served to them, but they can have an understanding of this. Who's this is who's serving my food. This is why this plate looks like this. This is why this plate came out after that one. Like Mm -hmm. knowing that background, I think makes the overall experience that much more enjoyable. Yeah, It's it's killer to hear you say that. I mean, there is a, there's a really meaningful piece. And I think part of what
1: kind of got me, um, deeply, well, okay, let me backtrack a little bit. So yeah, my background was not food. Um, my family, my mother was a diligent home cook, but I resisted that. I didn't mm-hmm. want to, she was healthy, you know, and, and, Uh, kind of resisted all that kind of really had an affinity for terrible and processed foods as a, you know, (laughs) not not an uncommon story. (laughs) Some of us outgrow it. And, um, anyway, so, uh, I didn't have this wonderful opportunity to live in France when I was 15 and that transformed. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's that, you know, the year in France, whatever the year in Provence, I actually lived in Provence. Um, that was transformative for me. It made me think about food in a different way and then slowly but surely much more interested in how to produce it and then got into the restaurant scene. And when I first had my first real job, that's when I realized, man, I just don't know how this is going to be a part of my life, but I can't imagine it not being a part of my life. And then, you know, things sort of trailed off from there. Um, and you know, it's, it's, I mean, that started my first job, actually, my first job was at the Drover. Mm-hmm. you know the was, steakhouse yeah yeah the steakhouse was wrapping baked potatoes and dipping onion rings and 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 working for the same gm who runs a place now and i mean it's just crazy because i didn't go back for 30 years and then i went for a dinner a year or two ago before the fire and uh-huh you know it's like i i walked into this truly walk in this time warp where everything looks exactly the same i mean it's like <laughs> the same bartender it's the same gm just you know a couple years advanced and, uh-huh you know this is the Thirty years later, or whatever, um, all the pictures in the same spot. The kid who's running around, bussing tables the way I used to buss tables, wearing the same kinds of clothes I wore. You know, it's like yeah, it's geez, a trippy Christmas. experience. <laughs> totally nuts. Same food, same wine, everything same. So um, yeah, so I think um, the story of the Omaha sort of the Omaha culinary story um, is something that I'm also kind of learning more about, especially its history. Um, the one that I grew up in, the one that I kind of came up through was, um, a lot different than it is now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a place where I think there were a lot of established practices. Things were played pretty safe. Mm -hmm. I think at the time there was a lot more emphasis on maybe club dining, maybe dining as it was prescribed the eighties. I mean, this was the nineties really. And, and things were not particularly revolutionary, not particularly edgy, not particularly pushy. And, um, and you kind of contrast that with now where there is a huge, or I should say a large array of people and everybody gets to try to offer the guest their area of expertise. Mm-hmm. So as a guest more so now than, Maybe, maybe ever, but possibly maybe since the late 60s, early 70s. There hasn't been, has there been such a commitment to the types of things, food, beverage, service, hospitality, location, um, ambiance, the whole kind of curated, although I don't like that word, the whole (laughs) kind of um, detailed experience that a guest gets, all of that gets to be... Thought about and orchestrated, and then kind of gone, reprocessed. And you know, most of the teams I know, I know most of everybody think about well, what went right, what went wrong. Let's try to redo it and do it a better job tomorrow. You know, all these people so committed to the guest experience and um, and doing it in a way where they get to be proud of the the, the skill set that they bring to the table. That's what's really remarkable about the current mm-hmm. sort of landscape restaurants. So not everybody is as good in verbalizing what they do. Mm-hmm. You probably encounter that, but, um, I don't think in our city's history has there been as broad an array of people who are committed to doing it.
0: Oh, I, I love that you bring that up because as I did my research, I, I found this quote just, um, that you gave a couple of years ago about, kind of the Omaha scene, and you were someone who really, I mean, Omaha had had French food before, but I would say Lee Woon kind of took it to the next level. Um, and you you had this quote that said, the notion that Omaha wasn't ready for something uh, was, as, uh, was a very pervasive sentiment for some time, and that's something that had to be shattered. Omaha would never be, quote, ready for something. You have to present it in a persuasive manner. You have to make good things in an affordable way, in a pleasant setting. You have to win people over one at a time. And I think that really plays into what you just said, because yeah, 20 years ago or 25 years ago, the Omaha culinary scene, really everything was kind of in a box. Everything was very similar. Every menu kind of looked the same. But once people began to experience different things, French food, tasting menus, Oriental food, sushi, like all these different things, they were very accepting of it. How have you seen the culinary scene change just in your time in Omaha?
1: Well, like most, (laughs) like most questions, there's a sort of background to all of this too. Um, You know, in part, a big piece of why the transformation is possible is because of the infrastructure around those decisions. And, and, you know, I'm um, not the wisest person. And so I've had to learn things uh, the hard way kind of over and over and over again. But- you know, there's a reason that restaurants looked like they did and behaved the way that they did in a sort of safe harbor, mm-hmm. um, and there's a reason that the industry moved maybe towards more um, club-type settings or big, kind of big box restaurants um, without windows that were kind of very, very similar from menu to menu. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason that that happens, and and to break from that mold, it requires so many other people to be committed to that vision. And I think that doesn't get really highlighted enough. I have a, I have a, uh, I'm married and we have now two kids, just had a second um, a few weeks ago, Friday the 13th, born Friday the 13th. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So learning about, from my perspective, I mean, what does this industry do if you have a family? What does it do to, to my spouse to be truly gone for huge periods because, and really critical periods, because they just don't, they just don't conform to most other people's schedules. That's something that everybody talks about. It's something that when talked about maybe as a badge of courage, you know, you think about the Anthony Bourdain kitchen confidential Mm -hmm. revolution where a bunch of cooks were like ready to take on that challenge as though it's a badge of courage and something you can tattoo and it's just going to be fine. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, real life happens and That isn't fine. That's really, 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 really hard. And that doesn't get easier as life goes on for anybody, for them and for you. And so when you're trying to, at the same time, reinvent the wheel as, as, you know, you've got life going on, real life, real meaningful, probably much more impactful stuff happening at home. Yeah. That's not saying irreconcilable, but extremely difficult to reconcile. And so um and that requires mindfulness and that requires um really really thinking about how other people are and 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 great gratitude for the support that they provide so it starts with the family and then it kind of goes to the the people that you get to work with the team that you get to be a part of and that are committed to your vision and are willing to sacrifice for that vision and are willing to kind of roll with the punches because, you know, it's not an easy thing. You know, you're learning as well as the guest. If you say that you're going to change hearts and minds, well, you know, you have to be your worst critic. You have to really internalize the the sharpest criticism and evaluate in the most honest way what you are doing right and what you're doing wrong. And then, you know, it requires other people. It requires, you know, a landlord that also believes in you, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you know before Buyan and even into Buyan, there was at boiler room and elsewhere there was that mercer um world which which helped incubate a lot of that stuff and and now it's you know it's my wife and i that have to kind of keep the ship together at bouyan and 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 with our crew with our wonderful crew of of, of misfits you know <laughs> i mean i don't mean misfits they're wonderful people lovable there. yes but uh, but i just mean you know it's like everyone is such a distinct personality and so kind of forceful that I can't just put everybody into kind of like a box and just say, Hey, you're all the same type of person. Uh Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's these multiple tiers of this layer cake to make it all possible and you can't take any one of those pieces away and expect it to all work out. So, so you're making this giant Jenga and you're pulling out or whatever you're building this like lattice work. And um, over time, of course, things are chipping away at its base Mm -hmm. because the one kind of truism about the restaurant industry, this goes back to my physics background, is that it is entropy in hyperdrive. Everything is breaking down all the time. Every idea that you have that's kind of meticulous and detailed is being pulled apart by, by everyone and everything from before you get through the front door to after the last person shuts out the lights and turns off the lights it's totally nuts so you have to be prepared with that too
0: so how do you play that jenga stack like how how do you how, how do you measure like i want to i i have such a passion i know you love french food you are a self-described francophile yeah sure you want to bring that to people and you want to Have them experience it because you love them. But at the same time, you have a family that you want to tend to. You have employees that you want to take care of. You have to balance all these different things. And I know there's probably not just, you know, one three-minute answer or something (laughs) that you can solve on a podcast here. But how do you kind of compartmentalize all those things? You know, uh,
1: I was fortunate to work in Paris for a little bit at a restaurant. And um, the way that the workflow went is arrive, I can't remember if it was eight or nine, but you arrive in the morning, I think it was eight, arrive at eight, sit around and drink a coffee, read the newspaper, kind of talk about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at nine o'clock, start prep. Maybe it was nine and then 10, I can't remember. And then, you know, you work for about an hour and a half Then there's first family meal for about 45 minutes. Then you open the doors to service. Then service happens, lunchtime, lunchtime service happens. Then everybody clears out. You sort of get everything rearranged. You take the break, the pause, mm-hmm. which is really common in, in Southern Europe. And then return, I want to say it was at, you return from, say, 2 to 6, I think. i uh, we'll prep again for an hour to get ready for night service. Then second family meal for 45 minutes. And then night service, which starts at 8, and then would go to 11.30, I think. That's when when it was shut down. And that was five days a week. And that's how the restaurant ran. So it was totally comported to... Um, everybody's everyday life for the most part, you know, Mm -hmm. you worked five days a week, you had sort of this period in the middle of the day to do kind of whatever that siesta is that, you know, you, that, that you need to do with your family, whatever else. And, and the reason I bring that up is there's an ease in that kind of lifestyle. There's an ease. When I experienced that kind of for the first time, it didn't happen like all at once. I mean, the light switch that happened when I was 15 and I'm living in France was that I went from thinking that everything that was brightly colored orange was the most delicious food in the world (laughs) to thinking, hey, I'm 15 years old. I've been relatively, and actually not super sheltered because I'm from Berlin and we would would travel to Europe a ton. And, you know, I understood that there was a broad array of foods out there. I just thought that I knew what they all tasted like and I knew what I liked and didn't like, which is absurd (laughs) when you're 15 years old. (laughs) And so the light switch was like, well, maybe I should just, test something, taste it, see if it's something that I do like, and maybe give it the benefit of the doubt. And that was the switch that I think kind of is the the key to what, if there's anything that I could like encourage people to embrace, it would be that. Just, hey, maybe you, like the thing that you think that you know is maybe not the thing that you know, but an opportunity to learn something that you didn't realize. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of pivot that a little bit. And so, you know, whether it's, I mean, I do have a love of French food and culture, whatever. Um, You know, I have a French degree. I've lived in France, all that kind of stuff without sounding super obnoxious about it. But the thing that I love the most about that experience is just how you don't have to advocate for it. It's just, it's a really balanced, wonderful way of living that if done right, seems effortless. And of course that's absurd because here in order to make that work takes an extreme amount of effort. Uh And that's the sort of the the two-step, that's the dance. And so- from you know from the kind of every everybody else kind of being on board i don't think that it's maybe the the kind of uh, la vie en rose kind of thing that compels people but it's the commitment to quality origin of product and food custody all the way from wherever that is cultivated to the dinner table mm-hmm. so that's the that chain of custody is such a precious thing that you know if you stop and think about the amount of labor and that's really something that at its most beautiful, there are a few kind of cultures around the world that just just obsess over where where does something get sourced? Mm-hmm. Who's the person responsible for it at the very at the very beginning, the origins, and then all along the way, there's a certain detailed focus to make sure to ensure the highest quality um, at at each step. Of that product so that when it hits the table and the product at the table may not even be the food, the product at the table may be the kind of experience at the table, which is probably the most important thing that's Mm -hmm. happening when you dine out, which is what's lost right now. That's so sad about what's wrong. Anyway. Um, no, we we can get into that if you want you, to. But, you know, like that's the piece. Yeah, that's it's just, painful. You know, I think all of us, and and as the weeks drag on, we're all like, man, I want to go out. I want to go. Well, why do you want to go out? It's like because there's magic that happens when you're out. Uh-huh. You know, there's this like mystery and magic and wonderment and, and not that there's anything wrong with being at home, in front of the TV, eating your delicious takeout. Mm-hmm. Trust me. I mean, I'm not losing weight during this period. <laughs> so um, I get it, But but the but that is a part of an actual lifestyle an actual culture a real thing and i think most of the people that i get to work with and have worked with embrace that piece of it and they're kind of really possessed by that vision of the of the culture that we get to kind of um, i don't know like um yeah the the culture that we get to um That's crazy. I don't, I don't know the right word. I want to sort of, it's like, it's so ephemeral. It's Mm -hmm. like magical. It's Mm -hmm. so temporary because one night of service has nothing to do with the next night of service. But when it's done right, when that gossamer is like in place and everybody gets to kind of partake in that, there's no better feeling.
0: I wish that everyone listening right now could just see Paul. He was just like in a different place, like talking about when everything comes together perfectly. Like his his face just lit up. It was like he was in Nirvana for a second. That was that was really fun. Um, man, there was so much in there to unpack that I would love to just touch on. I I, I love something that you mentioned that I I kind of wanted to hit on was just the idea of being open, mm-hmm. and to not closing. Your mind off to different types of food, whether you're familiar with it or not. And I'm gonna use a story here that might embarrass my wife a little bit, might get me in trouble later, but we're just gonna go with it. Um, before all this coronavirus nastiness happened, we we went out to Al qurant one night mm-hmm. and we did the we did the tasting menu. And I want to say it was a second course came out and it was a carpaccio dish. And so, you know, this is we neither of us had had carpaccio before, and the waitress explained it and everything, but. We didn't, you know, entirely know what it was. And it was absolutely delicious. We both just wolfed it down, thought it was amazing. So I'm looking into it more yesterday as I'm doing a write-up on Quran, And I was like, hey, Sarah, do you know you ate raw meat last night? Like <laughs> raw, raw steak, basically? And she's like, wait, what? Because she's, I'm a, I'm a pretty adventurous eater. Her family is a little bit more... Um, not as adventurous <laughs> and so she was sure. just kind of like oh my gosh I can't eat that again and I was like but you loved it yeah. you know you did and so I think that there's just that there's that open-mindedness that that's people true. need to to come into things with and that's why I love you know some of the things that you see at Le Bouillon. you can you know I don't think most Omahans you know might know what Castleette is going mm-hmm. into that experience or a Riet, or something like that but if they have an open mind they can have something amazing that can take them to a new place. Let me talk a little
1: bit about both of those dishes because that's really, it's funny you bring those two up because they are a lot in a lot of ways kind of characteristic of what bouillon is. Bouillon is, it's, um, well, I'll talk about that in a sec. Um, But those two dishes in particular, I mean, I tell this story all the time. Riette, doesn't matter what kind of origin, meat of origin it, it is. Riette is to French kids what peanut butter is to American kids. Really? It's like the same thing. Wow. When you come home from school and you just need a quick snack, uh-huh. there's a jar of Riette in every in every parent's, every family's cupboard or refrigerator. That's fascinating. And you spear it over a baguette and that's what you eat. Uh-huh. It's you don't have peanut butter, as it turns out. Uh-huh. That's kind of an exotic thing um, in Europe. But it is it is very homey and, and very accessible types of food. Cassoulet, which has, you know, there's a bunch of lore and there's like a, like a lot of things in, you know, food and culture are really tightly woven in, in France. And so Cassoulet comes in the Southwest of France where it's kind of like, kind of like Southern California, maybe not exactly. It's just, it's a, it's a kind of a perfect growing environment. It's warm very often, Mm -hmm. uh, dry. um, You know, it's, it's very easy to grow things and it was also historically embroiled in war and conflict and misery and you know whatever, I mean like most of Europe, and so uh, Castellet, the, the folklore of Castellet kind of comes from that. It comes from the, the I don't know if you know the story about this, but the the legend is that the um, there are three towns that kind of claim the origin of Castellet, and um, the one whose style that we subscribe to is from is Castel Notary, and it's a town in in Languedoc in, in southern France. Mm-hmm. And beautiful town and killer castle there if you ever get a chance to go. And um, so the, the, the folklore is, you know, this is the hundred years war. The English are kind of surrounding the town and the town is sort of beleaguered, and they're kind of sending off, you know, oh, please, we need help. We need help. We need reinforcements. And it's not coming, it's not coming. And so the the knights and the lords get together and they decide they're going to have one last ditch effort to break this English siege. And in order to do that, they needed to fortify their soldiers, and they made this giant cauldron of local beans and all these different meats that kind of got stewed in a specific way. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was so enriching and so fortifying that the you know the French knights were able to burst out of the castle and break the English siege. And you know, the, there's actually a, a shen, a group of people who are who like to preserve castle lore or whatever. And their joke is that if it wasn't for Cassoulet, France would be speaking English because <laughs> it would turned the tide of the world. Whatever, uh-huh. um, better folklore than than history. But so it is another one of these dishes that is, I mean, at its core, it's like franks and beans or whatever. It's a very simple dish mm-hmm. at its core. Yeah, we can sort of try to be fussy about it. What we try to do is treat it as. Earnestly as we possibly can, with the right beans and the right duck, you know, confit or or braised in fat the, the right way, and the garlic sausage that we make, and the pork belly that we do, and the blah 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 blah. But but um but to me, we sort of want to respect that heritage and tradition. So that's again, it's not about being, um, you know, I can't I can't even think of a dish that's more kind of connected with somebody's heritage than mm-hmm. maybe cassoulet is to the people of Toulouse and, and Southwestern France. I mean, mm-hmm. it is, it, it goes back like five or 600 years. It's a dish that people would sort of grow up eating. And so it's not, it's not exotic. It's not different. In fact, if anything, it's like the distillation of their own culture. And so when we, when we try to make these dishes, we're not trying to offer something which is weird and exotic. Mm-hmm. We're trying to say, Hey, this is literally we so like kind of motto is everyday french and the idea there is is for french everyday it's like not the kind of penguin waiter you know black tie <laughs> yeah. and white apron you know shuffling around this is a sort of relaxed but still thoughtful experience and and that's the that's the piece to really those two dishes that they are in theory in my kind of mind in 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 my est- estimation these are dishes that are good to be eaten every day and there's no reason or cause for a special occasion because Mm -hmm. that's what historically that's what that was all about so it's funny that you bring those two dishes up because that is like to me just like oh yeah that's sort of like steak and potatoes or whatever you know what i mean maybe not like sushi we love sushi who doesn't love sushi but you know even in japan you don't eat sushi every day there's a certain cost associated with that but Mm -hmm. but riyats you eat every day yes you have every day (laughs) that's like come home smear it over baguette
0: and eat it and see i think that goes back, this is all like tying back to where we started this conversation when we talked about all the different food stories. Like the way that I would appreciate a cassoulet after that (laughs) five minute dissertation is entirely different than it would have been five minutes ago. Like, and I think that it's just so interesting to learn the history behind that dish, your personal history that comes into it, the, the history behind the local purveyors who are providing the animals and the produce that goes into that dish even down to you know the background and the history of the the line cook who mm-hmm. you know probably introduced one or two you know little personal things from there and there like there's so many levels to every dish that when you think about that even if you don't fully understand all of it i think it just makes you appreciate food and what you're eating so much more It's, it's fun because you can really dive into it Yeah, you can,
1: yeah, there's a lot to, there's a lot to really unpack and, and you do, I mean, you know, if every time you went out and bought clothes, instead of going to old Navy, you went to a tailor and they built clothes specific to you, Uh you know, you'd like to say, generally speaking, this is the kind of clothing that I'm looking for. I'm maybe looking for sports apparel. Can you make that happen? And then they're like, oh, yes, of course, of course. see si, signore. And they, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like they, they stitch it all together and it's perfect. It's just like, it's perfectly to you. Uh-huh. I mean, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that experience be wonderful? Yeah. You know, if you think about it from other times, and this is kind of what a lot of the restaurants are. They're mm-hmm. essentially bespoke tailors. You get to go in, if it's Okrant, if it's Yoshitomo, if it's Buyan, there's like, there's a, there's a bunch. I'm not going to name everybody because we'd be here for a little bit. Right. Um, but, um, Yeah, have V-Mertz and boiler room and you walk in and that's all everybody in that team wants to do. Like, just like, they're like these, these like race cars just waiting, please, please please give us the chance to do this. And, and that's what they're, they're ready to, you know, just make it perfect. And, um, you know, and, and what a wonderful opportunity for the guests to kind of say, yeah, okay, cool. I get to take a test drive in a Ferrari. Uh Let's, Let's do this, you know? Um, and by the way, um, yeah, the economics really quickly, And that's the hardest thing. That's the biggest piece about the industry that's that's challenging. Um, and it's so funny because before the coronavirus collapse, everybody's trying to unpack what this is, looks like, mm-hmm. you know? And in a lot of cases, it's like the David Changs of the world and the Shane Brock's of the world. They're kind of aging. You know, they're like me. We're sort of aging into a part of our lives where it's like, man, this is like unsustainable. This is super, super hard. Um, and everyone wants to figure out a model and maybe you talked about it with with Glenn a little bit too. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you do it for your team? How do you do it for yourself? How do you balance that kind of stuff? You know, mm-hmm. I I um when 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 I left Boiler Room and that was a tremendous experience and I'm eternally grateful for having that opportunity. My wife and I opened Buyan on our own. We were just and like I'd like to think at each stage of the restaurants that I've opened and been a part of that <laughs> like like I said, I'm not very wise, so kind of think, oh yeah, is totally got this under easy, and, and it's like, oh, oh my lord, what have I done? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, what is this? And and our first child was born that same first year, and it's just things coming at us so just from every direction, and the commitment that required of her, and to try to be you know economically viable. Now this is just us; we got to make this make sense and. Mm-hmm um you know that piece of it is i think that's the biggest challenge because when you hear the sort of the real the only real reason that people i think have a an impediment there is a little bit of like i don't want to try something that i don't know there's a part of that mm-hmm. but i think a big part of it is people are afraid of getting ripped off you don't want to spend money on something you don't like yeah. and and i super duper sympathize with that and the more things tighten up coronavirus and anything else kind of the competition just amongst the, you know, the overwhelming amount of options, the, the, the plethora of options, all those things, you know, make people try to make prudent decisions with where they're, you know, where they're spending their dining dollars. Mm-hmm. And I, and i I want to say super respectful of that, but I assure you that the people that we're talking about, the people who are committed to delivering this kind of bespoke experience, this race car level experience, um, we're, we're not looking to actually own race cars and, and and helicopters and, you know, make lives that are extravagant. Um, it's driven by a, a kind of sacrifice and passion for those experiences themselves, which is nourishing and enriching. Um, that's actually made, in some ways, the most remarkable part of the story in Omaha is the insane price structure that, pe- that places are at. Mm-hmm. And... I, I can't emphasize enough and in, in for people who travel a lot and people who try to find the places in other markets that have been really trying to push their own boundaries and if you visit them in the Bay Area and San Francisco, whatever, whatever the major market is that you go to and you, you look at those experiences, even in Kansas City, you look at, the, and look at the bottom line and it is just insane that people in Omaha over the last 20 years in this sort of transformation have committed to a staff, which is way more familiar with what you're drinking Mm -hmm. wine or cocktails, whatever else using the best products that they can find, you know, not trying to take advantage of maybe your lack of information about a certain, you know, wine or, or spirit, but rather spending their own time just researching these things and going out and trying and blah, blah, blah to bring that to the table. So there's a cost associated with that. Restaurants have borne costs associated with that. And I would say of the last 20 years, the one thing, because we now, you know, so Bouillon is in the old French cafe space. Mm-hmm. When we took over that space, there was a ton of French cafe items left over. Right. And in fact, I worked at the French cafe once upon a time back in the day. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, so there's a stack of menus and, and it's not just, you know, French cafe, it's all these other places that I was working at in my early 20s. You know, if you look at the real dollar outlay, the real dollar expense that people had in that time and compare it with today's sort of top tier restaurant, you would be spending more real dollars, not just like adjusted for inflation dollars, like a dish cost more money at those restaurants at that time than they do now. Really? Now, think about that. Now, so just think about when we talk about things being expensive or kind of, it's like, hmm, interesting. Interesting. Because if you, I mean, I have the menus, so I can speak pretty authoritatively. Mm-hmm. If you look at the menus from the late 90s and you compare them with the late 2000 teens, you know, it's like, it's $65 fish dishes and, and lamb dishes. And there's nowhere, in, I mean, outside of the steakhouses, the really exclusive steakhouses, mm-hmm. 801, maybe, maybe Monarch, you know, where you're dealing kind of on a price per ounce kind of thing, maybe you approach that kind of price, but... I mean, you've been in You know how that is. Mm-hmm. V Murts. I mean, not that way. Boiler and Bouillon, not that way. Mm-hmm. You look at that. You look across that Dolce. You uh, just. You look across that spectrum. You know, Dante. Nothing anywhere close. Mm-hmm. Nothing anywhere close. And, I mean, that speaks to the that speaks to the, the actual advantage, the financial advantage. I mean, it sounds crazy because you think like, yeah, it's expensive. You know, but can't yeah, you can just go out and spend fifty bucks every night for dinner? But. The value has never been better, actually ever,
0: maybe in the city's history. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. So, and maybe this is a weird time to talk about this because obviously coronavirus changes everything, but just let's pretend that that doesn't exist for a moment. How do we shift people's thinking to help them understand that this, the quality of the food that you're getting, the amount of effort that goes into it, the just incredible sourcing of ingredients the way that these animals are raised the way that these plants are raised every this whole package that you're getting in front of you what you think is expensive is actually like you said incredible value how do we reshape people's thinking so they're willing to accept that because i've gotten to that point where i'm willing to pay 30 or 40 dollars for an entree if it's incredible i don't know if my parents will do that sure i mean they will but if it's in the right setting right it's like that's like,
1: there's so many, (laughs) that's a kind of magic show. That's like above my pay grade, how how that actually happens. (laughs) Um, I will say this, you know, you, you probably have your best source in your own mind and kind of evaluating your own story, Uh what it was that kind of got you curious about all these types of things and what took you, what took you there. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's why I kind of go back to my experience. Like, why did I go from thinking that Orange Slice and velveeta was so delicious to feeling like oysters are so delicious? How did that transition happen? Because I remember I have this, like, such a distinct memory of that same age being offered. um, It was a canned oyster, you know, so it was cooked. But And I just thought it was the absolute most disgusting thing I could have ever seen and couldn't imagine in any scenario anybody ever eating something so gross. And now if you gave me 150,000 oysters, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be enough. Like I just, they're, they're the best thing ever. And so, but that transformation comes from, you know, a couple of light switches, a couple of like, hmm, I wonder if maybe, I remember it was like, for me, it was two different things. It was, there was a uh, one moment when I'm sitting at the dinner table and again, I'm 15 years old. And like I said, I had a little glimmer of this from kind of traveling back and forth. But we were from Berlin, and Berlin wasn't like, you know, in the 80s, on like a food destination. I mean, there's there's killer food in there now. There's a great Netflix special about a guy, um, Tim Rawa. Um, but, you know, <laughs> there's no Michelin or whatever. And it was just butter and then these little rolls, you'd in which you were taken really seriously, and and a few other kind of details. But for the most part, you know, you didn't really think about food as an important part of culture. And then I'm in this dinner setting, you know, it's family, I'm at that, back in those days, you would do an exchange where you would try, I traveled solo, nobody mm-hmm. lived with a family <laughs> half a world away without internet or, you know, just at age like, 15, at age 15, yeah. you're just like, bye, see you later, <laughs> see you in six months or whatever. And, uh, and their kid came, so it's kind of like collateral, right? So their kid came and stayed with our, with my family. Uh huh. And so I'm, you know, here I am, it's like day two or three and I'm sitting at the table and it wasn't elaborate, but there was like a multiple course meal at every, at every dinner. So it was, you know, there would be like some kind of an, uh, uh, you know, some kind of like a first course canopy type thing. And then there was like, typically there would be a meat dish with a side, and then there would be a salad and then there would be, um, cheese and then there would be yogurt or dessert. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of like put on the table like that for, you know, about an hour and a half every night. And I remember just, you know, it's like, The cheese course came, you know, this is like, I mean, I'm like, I'm doing the, the, like the, the quote fingers because it's like cheese course. They're sitting at a table, you know, there's no cheese course, but it kind of came like it was a course. It was Uh super interesting to have that in the home setting. And I'm still hungry. Like I'm 15. I haven't eaten enough. I'm like dying here. And I remember the, the mother saying, well, we know you're an American and you guys don't like cheeses. So you don't have to have any of this if you don't want to. And I remember thinking, don't tell me what I can, I can't yeah. have. You know what I mean? Just thinking like, that was maybe because of my disposition, really helpful to be challenged like that. But that was like a f- first one. And then I remember trying pizza with an egg on it, which I know is relevant to you. Yeah, um, uh, But that was like, oh, who would ever do that? And then, oh, that's really delicious. And that was like a, a bell once rung, can't be unrung, mm-hmm. you know? And then there were like these little fried fish and there were the whole fish fritures is what they're called and and um, lightly battered and it was like a pile of them and they were just so good i couldn't believe that they had their heads and tails on and they were just so delicious uh-huh yeah those three those three experiences and then after that it was just like more and more and more and more, and more.
0: i think and this is this might be going off but uh, just another example of this first of all i love that you trolled, told the cheese plate story i, <laughs> I was going to ask you about that so i'm really happy that we got there but to to kind of tie it back and even and mention one of your restaurants um via farina Mm -hmm. we haven't really talked about that Mm -hmm. one yet the first time that i was exposed to neapolitan style pizza i didn't really get it Mm -hmm. because it's the way that it's cooked in the wood burning oven it's kind of soft and floppy in the middle and then it gets you know it has more structure on the exterior and then the the crust is actually on the exterior is actually you know, nice and and charred and has mm-hmm. like some dough pockets and stuff. And I didn't get it the first time I had, it. I was like, why is the middle of this pizza so weird? <laughs> and then I realized, Oh, you fold it like this sounds yeah. so dumb. Now this was three or four years ago. So I promise I'm slightly smarter, no, you're,
1: you're all good. but, you're all good. but now
0: Neapolitan style pizza is my favorite pizza. If I have a choice between that and anything, I'm going Neapolitan style because I, ju- I it's just delicious. And I think there's just, there's this value to, going into every dining experience with an open mind. And, and maybe part of it is like being challenged, almost like this is something new. I want to try this. Yeah.
1: That's, I mean, I I will say one of the pieces that's kind of interesting about the transition. We used to talk about this a lot in the early William days, which was, you know, people were very accustomed and and I don't want to, I don't mean, all right. I don't mean to throw anybody under the bus, but, the standard practices in restaurants and kitchens that i grew up in i would not ever do to my guests <laughs> yeah and i and I, I i i understand that reality is what reality is but um that's like off the table that kind of stuff so um but part of relying on ingredients that are pre-made is that they're modified in such ways and they're enhanced in such ways to kind of give that that response like, ooh, that soup is really delicious because it has that like modified yeast extract and has that umami thing that comes from whatever know whoever knows what kind of powders, et cetera, and and packaged and pre-made kind of concentrates. Cause that's frankly how much much was made back then. Mm-hmm. And um you know with 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 that kind of taste and, and it's, it is enjoyable. Like there's a reason people like Cheetos. There's a reason they're, they're delicious. Yeah. I and mean, they just are. Yeah. No one's denying that, you man. know? And so if you're, if you're introducing natural flavors, this is the, probably the biggest impediment. first is that there's always going to be a certain type of person that says, and I mean this, I do actually mean with respect. Like there's a certain type of person that's going to be like, it seems bland. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't have any flavor. And you know, if you taste the way that like black mozzarella tastes versus you know, well, fior de latte, You know, like the 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 buffalo mozzarella, mm-hmm. which has more flavor. Well, the the packaged mozzarella thing, right? At first glance, right. And so a lot of things, you know, we, we get the French onion soup thing at Bouillon all the time about you know like one French onion versus another French onion. Um, I would say that an awful lot of French onion comes. I mean, Lipton makes a really delicious broth. And if you use that as the base for soup, it's going to always kind of have this like core umami type thing that you're going to associate with the most delicious type of broth. If you stop drinking that or eating that for a year or two or three, you find it weird when you taste it. Mm -hmm. It's like instantaneous when you taste like, oh, that comes from a concentrate that comes from like, by the way, um, I love the fact that you say bouillon, right? I just have to say it real quickly. (laughs) Um, there's another per radio personality who can't seem to pronounce it, which is like so interesting to me. Um, who has in like a background in Louisiana and, um, always struggles with the, where the I or whatever. So it's bouillon as in bouillon cube.
0: Yes. And well, I, per- I mispronounce usually two or three things every episode. Man, so the fact that I got one right, it. makes me feel good. Nailed it.
1: Yeah. You nailed it. And, and you know, I, I'm naming is not one of my strengths, although Um, yeah, it just, I mean, bouillon is, has turned out to be a difficult word for people to uh, spell and also pronounce, but it, it, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a broth and a bouillon cube is a broth concentrate. Mm -hmm. And if you stop using them or powdered equivalents and then taste them down the road, they, they just scream out at you. It's like, if you stop using dried oregano or dried herbs that are coming in like McCormick's packets. Use the real stuff. Use the real stuff. And then you smell it or taste it months or years later, it just like, you can't un- smell it. Just, yeah. it, it's like, whoa, that is stale. And so part of it is that transition. And some people in that transition say like, hey, this new stuff is just more, f- more flavorless. It's just, there isn't as much, mm, much there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, restaurants back in the day kind of really understood that and took advantage of the, the cream and the butter and the heavy stuff and the, you know, the dried herbs and the, you know, all those things the onion powders and garlic powders that kind of make in certain cuisines all the sense in the world. Like you can't imagine barbecue. Try to make barbecue without onion powder or garlic powder. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, not that or, or dried pepper. It's yeah. just like not going to happen. So that belongs inherently to that type of food maybe not quite as much across the spectrum of other types of foods. And especially when it comes to those kinds of cuisines that are predicated on freshness. And then, oh man, when you start to taste fresh stuff, oh, that's where it's at. You know what I mean? And you, and you, you just start to gravitate towards that. I mean, I'll do you one better on the whole Neapolitan pizza thing. You can fold it. it, but you know, if you go to like the, whatever the, the old school spots in, in Naples, mm-hmm. there's no folding anything. It's a fork and knife. You know what I mean? It's oh like, yeah. It's like yeah. Cause they don't even cut the pizza. Yeah, I don't even cut it. Yeah. I'm sure you talked to Nick about that. So, you know, it's just like a fork and knife deal. And, and so that actually is a whole different kind of approach to the way that people see pizza. Cause it's not like the jumbo slice that, you know, you kind of uh-huh. like, which is great. Cause that's a different kind of pizza. In fact, John at Via Farina is a, he's like, um, He's like a pizza advocate. He doesn't believe that there's like a better or worse style because he like loves it, loves. It. He's like, Detroit pizza's got a place. Uh-huh. Deep dish's got a place. He's like a deep dish advocate too. Um, and so there is a place for all, and I'm not going to say that there isn't, but for the, the kind of captivating quality of, of, of freshness and balance, that's like, that's like the nuanced stuff that's kind of hard to get into. But once you kind of get a mindset for it, First of all, you can eat more of it, which mm-hmm. I think is really interesting. Like there's, a, um, you know, certain meats, for example, that are leaner. The advantage is you can eat actually more protein because it's not weighted down by all this fat. Like, it's, you know, Piedmontese beef. And, right. Uh, Canina beef. And, you know, there's, there, are these, there are these types of animals that that the protein is a little bit more kind of filling as opposed to the fats. And you don't feel as kind of laden when it's all said and done. So the like the Neapolitan pizza... Um, that we do at Via Farina is different from other places. And I don't know that we necessarily want to be sort of described as Neapolitan in the purest sense, like the whole Varus certified stuff, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I think Nick does a great job of. Mm-hmm. You know, at Via, we kind of committed to a little bit more punch to everything. So it's like a slightly elevated kind of quality because we are, after all, here in Omaha, in the Midwest, and we want things to be a little bit more, just a little bit more punchy. And so we selected a sourdough, for our starter. So all the dough, when we make the dough doesn't rely on cake yeast or poolish, which is a kind of a extra 24 hour pre-ferment when you make dough. So if you're kind of like making a milder, less sour um, bread, that's like an option for you. We built a sourdough, which is going to have more of that tang. You know, you can always evaluate sour kind of up your jawline. So whether you're drinking wine or you're having a, a piece of bread, you can just feel it when you sort of chew it, you kind of like just kind of see how it tingles up your jaw. And if it's up in your ears, you're like, Oh, that's a lot of acid. And if it's down kind of, you know, below the turn of your jaw, maybe it's not so quite so tart, you know, beer isn't very tart, for example. Uh-huh. So um we like that. We like that extra little bit of, because it helps in my opinion, kind of carry the char along. Mm-hmm. So, our balance is maybe a little elevated at Via Frina. It's a little bit, a little bit sweeter with the tomatoes, a little bit just the tomatoes that we selected, the the types of tomato that we get. Um, a little bit tartar, a little bit more charred, a little bit punchier. That's kind of where that came from. So but in the end, if you try Via Frina and thinking that it's gonna be Frank's pizza or something like that, mm-hmm. like you're gonna be like it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. A totally different universe.
0: Wow. It's like, just to give people context, it's like 2 third in the afternoon. I had a hearty breakfast, <laughs> a good lunch. I should not be hungry right now. And now I'm just like sitting here and my mouth is just like watering, <laughs> thinking of this pizza. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I, I could pick your brain for, for hours on this stuff. We could go on and on. I want to try and be respectful of your time. But before we get out of here, I'm just, I'm so interested and I, I hate that we even have to talk about this, but. It's our current situation, the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Every restaurant has had to make just crazy adjustments on the fly. And I love some of the things that you've done. You are doing in-home delivery like... You yourself. Me. Yes, you are the one who's coming to people's doors and giving them their food. You are. Uh, Bringing the toaster to your door. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Uh, You guys started doing meal kits. So like similar to if people are familiar with Blue Apron, Mm -hmm. HelloFresh, things along that. Well, things are
1: actually prepared. So let me just make. So the meal meal plan is like that. So it's meant to be a multiple of meals. But instead of having just like an ingredient kit, we'd have pre. As much as we can prepare it for you, mm, we kind of wanted to take it to that point. And then you just have like a little bit of reheating, gotcha. tweaking. Yeah. So the commitment on your end is like if you got a little bit of salt, maybe a little olive oil, a toaster, microwave oven at home, you're going to be fine. Like a toaster oven, a microwave, you're going to, or oven, you're going to be in
0: good shape. So it's even more convenient than HelloFresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just like what is that moment like when you realize that for, just some unknown period of time, your restaurants are going to be completely different. The way that they're operated, the way that food is delivered. Like, do you get everybody together in a war room and just throw, start throwing ideas on the wall? Is there, is it just you who's supposed to come up with a plan and everyone looks at you? Like what, what is that like as ideas are formulated on how to adjust to this? I've
1: got to give a little bit of credit to the team at Bouillon in particular. So a couple of people, there's like a core group of people, Alex Nelson, Sam Zaccone, Tammy Hunter, Katie Heffley, David Amadon, who kind of represent right now. They're the, they're the working staff. There are a lot of other people we love there, but those are the people who've kind of like been our core um, contributors in terms of what we're going to do. And, um, you know, Alex kind of started spearheading some planning because it appeared that things were starting to spiral, um, and we needed to kind of keep in mind what we were going to look at, and um, and I just have to credit his kind of forethought on that. When we do our meetings, he was a big part of that um, discussion, and um, you know, kind of what we would do as a as a as a company, and then um, to make matters more interesting. So. Um, on Friday the 13th, um, my wife and I had our second child mm-hmm. and that was like, as everything was really starting to escalate rapidly. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's no, there's no question. The number one focus and, and most heartening thing in the world right now is this, well, both the kids, but the new one's really great. And, <laughs> um, my wife's, uh, uh, just a saint and, a. Um, I don't know, just a remarkable person to be able to lose as much sleep as she has and maintain a good disposition, I'll tell you that much. But um, you know, so so this this was kind of they were just they were converging these two experiences. And that weekend, we were so hel- you know, so thankful, healthy baby born, and we were in the hospital, and my wife kind of started to pivot and say, Okay, now we need to think about what what are we going to do next? What what are the next steps? And you know, watching everybody make these tough decisions to to close down because uh, for a variety of reasons, because of the impending orders, because of concerns about exposure, you know, workflow, uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of tough things. And um, we kind of, um, I think that Sunday we sort of, you know she and I kind of looked at each other and saw, well, we're going to, you know, do what we can to keep offering what we do the best that we do. We'd already taken, so her father is a physician or retired physician. So we had taken a lot of precautions in the weeks preceding. Like I said, we were planning, there was, there is a supplier, by the way. and People should know this. Omega Chemical does offer a coronavirus antiviral cleaning solution, that has been something which is we we got we got early on because her father mentioned that that would be something worth looking into. So we were kind of always wiping down hard surfaces and trying to space everybody because we were fortunate beyond to have a big dining room, so we could we can space people well and you know, really take precautions as a team in terms of how we would set and what we would serve with and all that kind of stuff. And, and then at the end of that, that Sunday, maybe it was Monday. I don't remember, but I think it was Sunday. She, you know, she said, well, let's, let's see if we can try to fight through this. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, we came to that conclusion kind of together that we were going to, we were going to do our best to pivot pretty much the whole operation. And we had like 24 hours to, trying to make sense of what that was going to look like. And that was really tough, you know, and Bouillon is a, so we're so fortunate that restaurant is such an, such an important space. I mean, we occupy the old French cafe space. The old French cafe was, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't even need, probably need to tell people who listen to this. I mean, how important the, the French cafe is to the history of dining in Omaha. Right. So that space, that space is so precious and meaningful for so many people. And you no, know, that's off the table really nobody gets to enjoy that space anymore. Mm -hmm. Not the French cafe space, but not even our, you know, what we've done. Yeah. I think we, I think I like what we've done with the space. So, so that stuff we have, we had opened Howard street wine as a wing, which is a wine merchant and um, a really killer wine merchant too. So on 1013, which is basically the old French cafe front door. Mm -hmm. um, We took that sort of part of the restaurant and we converted that into a bottle shop. So, for a number of reasons that can still operate. So for calling in or for browsing certainly encourage people to give us a shout or an email about what they want. We're able to we had been able to for some time kind of package things, bring them to them. The delivery component of our operations from the wine side had already been in place. So so we had a little bit of that sort of Built oh, foundation, yeah. yeah. Um we had to pivot the restaurant And what the restaurant does, uh, totally. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know, initially we were sort of fortunate because it was a it was a tapering off. You know, there was less. I think it was the ten person order.
0: Yeah, It started off at like fifty, and then it went down to twenty five, and and now it's ten. Yeah,
1: ten and then zero basically for dine in. So we had a little bit of that. Um, We kept a skeleton crew together, and then you know we had to make some tough decisions. Um, to kind of to circle down to the those people that I mentioned, and mm-hmm. um, and man, it's so tough for the other people who you know who. Hopefully, hopefully this doesn't last as long as some of the prognostications, and we can get everybody kind of back up and running to to normal. But um, because we talk to a lot of these people really frequently, we're in close touch to with with them and what their lives are like and and what our kind of future together can look like and so in the meantime we're trying to run this restaurant operation this to to, to go so there's curbside available and then there's the delivery piece to that too and we're doing our best to pivot into that and mm-hmm. and deliver the best dishes that we think travel the best so yeah. it's not like we we paired our menu down to the things that we think are like hey this this will go really well and there's been a lot of really um, really great ideas that the team has kind of put together and to keep that going. And um, a lot of that's on the website or social media. So we try to let people kind of select from what these new ideas are. So there's something kind of new and, and fun every day. So we like to keep it fresh and and we're still able to support the purveyors that we work with. And, you know, they're obviously going to, feel a ton of this impact as well. And so we want to be able to kind of connect with them and soothe some of that pressure and frustration and, and fear. And to the degree that we can just kind of have this tight, close knit community, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, there's, there is my family at home and then there's the family that we have at work and we're just, it's really been a trying time, but people have been extremely supportive of one another It's been, and everybody's feeling it. Everybody feels the consternation. I can see it in everybody's faces. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's draining. But at the same time, I'm just so grateful, so unbelievably grateful for those people that, you know, I get to see at home and the people I get to see at work. And then, um, and then just the response of the public, which has been so committed to supporting local and working with restaurants and And I think everyone kind of understands what's at stake and, and you and other people's sort of singing that tune has really, really been unbelievably, um, supportive and wonderful and and can't say how much we appreciate that.
0: Yeah, of course. It's, it's my pleasure. You guys serve me amazing food. All I do is have you on a dopey little podcast and tweet (laughs) about how good the food is. And and just to tease out, so people, if you want to support an awesome local restaurant and you want to try out Le Bouillon, you can do one of the meal kits, like we talked about earlier, 40 bucks for four meals. Like, that's a steal. That's ridiculous. Some other things, just to tease out, a shrimp roll, a, a Bouillon burger, you can get a croque madame sandwich, you can get chicken and crepes, or if you want to tie it back into this episode, you can get a cassoulet. <laughs> so... I mean, just all kinds of great options, and I highly encourage you to check out the website, check out your options, and if you order something, you just might get Paul Kulik to... Or- to- <laughs> show up on your doorstep <laughs> and hand it to you very safely. Yeah, we, we do. Should point we actually,
1: out. one of the things we are, what I've been doing is is when I do drop off, I communicate that I prefer a no-contact porch delivery. Yes. So people have been super down with that. So I can let them know maybe a minute or two before I get there. Hey, mm-hmm. it's going to be here. And then a lot of times people are looking out for me. And so we wave at each other through the door.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. This was party. truly a pleasure. I could have done this for, like I said, hours and hours yeah. more, but... We got to respect your time. We got to respect the, the studio's time <laughs> here. So um, Dan, just thank you, thank you so thank much.
1: You. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. Of Keep course. up the good
0: work. I'll, I'll do my best. No, and fine. as long as we're saying all the thank yous, thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. This is always a pleasure. Um, thanks for eating with me. A
1: Parkville Media Production.